We pick up with the story of Elijah and Elisha at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, also at page 258 of the Hebrew Bible section. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the waters, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm, I'm freshly back from spending two weeks in England with my sister. It wasn't relaxing, but it was loads of fun. We did and saw a lot. Among other things, I discovered the perfect diet. Eat whatever you want and walk eight miles a day. <laughs> We visited dozens of churches and chapels, some huge, some tiny, all very old. Most have pulpits five or more feet higher than where I'm standing right now. Not because preachers are so high and mighty, but because in the days before sound systems, the congregation could hear the preacher better if he was speaking out over them. Instead of a matching wooden lectern, uh, like ours, many churches have a brass lectern with eagle's wings spread to hold the Bible. We visited the chapel at Corpus Christi College at Oxford, uh, which has one of the oldest lecterns in England. Uh, it's a pre-Reformation lectern from the early 1500s. But while the other eagle lecterns that we saw were topped with a rather fierce-looking eagle, the Corpus Christi Eagle had sort of a pained expression. As the chaplain explained, you would too if you'd listened to over 400 years worth of sermons. <laughs> so it's with that in mind that we begin our look at Elijah and Elisha this morning. Elijah and Elisha are the prophets with the frustratingly similar names. In the Hebrew Bible, Prophets don't foretell the future. They speak truth to power, to kings and to the elite who make life tough for the common people. Specifically, they speak truth on behalf of God, whose laws helped protect the common people from royal abuses. 
Often, prophetic truth was packaged as a warning about consequences. You don't need to look in a crystal ball to tell your child, if you don't study, you're not going to get a good grade on that test. In the same way, the prophets said, there are consequences to abandoning God's laws, and if you continue to be unfaithful, you will face those consequences. The stories about Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings are magical and miraculous. We're not in our own modern world here, but we still find surprisingly modern themes. A mentor and a protege, passing the baton onto the next generation, and a leadership transition. It helps us get oriented if we look back a bit. In First Kings, Elijah is something of a hero at the top of his game when he publicly humiliates the prophets of Baal, a competing deity obviously inferior to the God of Israel. It's one of the most dramatic stories in the Bible. The 450 prophets of Baal gather for a showdown. Elijah taunts them as they dance around, hoot and holler, do anything else they can think of to get their god Baal to light a fire on their altar, piled with wood and animal sacrifices. Nothing happens. To rub it in their faces, Elijah has the wood on his altar soaked with water. Then Elijah simply prays, and God sends fire that consumes the offering, the wood, and the stones of the altar. A big win for Yahweh. In an unbecoming fit of rage, Elijah turns the crowd into a mob that kills the prophets of Baal. Jezebel, the wife of wicked king Ahab, is not amused, and he orders that Elijah be killed. He escapes to the mountains where he has a holy encounter with God in what our Pew Bible translates as the sound of sheer silence, but the King James Version more poetically translates a still small voice. Elijah says he's been zealous for God, but now he's alone and his life is in jeopardy. God tells Elijah he isn't alone. There are 7,000 people who are still faithful. Then God tells Elijah that he is to anoint Elisha as a prophet in his place. Elisha doesn't replace Elijah immediately. When Elijah first meets Elisha, he puts his cloak, or as the Bible translates it, his mantle, on him in a ritual that tells us that their relationship is almost like a father and son. They work together as mentor and apprentice, but then it's time for Elijah to be taken up into heaven. Elijah is the only biblical prophet that didn't die but was taken up this way. It's a way of saying that Elijah was exceptional. In preparation, Elijah travels hither and yon, and Elisha insists on following him, even when Elijah tells him to stay put. The last stop is the Jordan River. Just like Moses before him parting the Red Sea, or Joshua parting this same river while carrying the Ark of the Covenant, Elijah rolls up his mantle and strikes the Jordan, separating the waters and giving the two of them a path over dry ground. 
Elijah asks Elisha what he can do for him before he leaves. Elisha wants to follow in the footsteps of this great prophet, so he asks for a double share of Elijah's spirit. Now this might sound arrogant. Imagine telling your mentor, not only do I want to be as good as you, I want to be twice as good. Now first of all, any mentor worthy of the name, especially a mentor in the faith, hopes and prays for just this, that those who follow will actually surpass them. Elisha needs the Spirit of God given by Elijah in order to carry on the work that the great Elijah started. Oddly, Elijah seems unsure about whether Elisha will receive this blessing. You'll only receive it if you see me as I leave you, he says. Artists, including the painting on the cover of our bulletin, have shown Elijah being carried off in a flaming chariot, but apparently the chariot was just blocking Elisha's view until he sees Elijah being carried away by the whirlwind. This means Elisha has seen the unseeable and passed the test. Elisha tears his own cloak in grief, but then he picks up Elijah's, and that's where we get the expression, picking up the mantle of leadership. And just to prove he really has inherited Elijah's spirit, he takes that mantle and strikes the water just the way Elijah did. It parts, and he walks across the dry land to the other side. It's an odd story. It's an ancient story. It is not intended to serve as a history lesson, but nevertheless, it is intended to tell us something about God and about ourselves. The most obvious and simplest lesson here, and the one that feels relevant to where we are as a congregation, is that when the people of God need a new leader, God is on the job. God made it clear that as exceptional as Elijah was, God's plans did not depend solely on Elijah. Likewise, God's work doesn't depend on any one pastor of a church or on any individual leader within the church. God continues to raise up new leaders, sometimes even leaders blessed with a double portion of their predecessor spirit. Elisha was not Elijah. Elijah was a miracle worker, a signs and wonders sort of prophet, inspired and inspiring. Elisha will turn out to be more organized, less flashy, more managerial, a consolidator of the message that Elijah was so fiery in declaring. Elisha is still quite an advocate, mind you, but he is more refined and less dramatic. As the needs of the people changed, God provided the right kind of next person to spread the good news of God's love and justice, which is exactly what will happen here. God will raise up the right next person for this congregation. We still need to do our work, keep learning about ourselves, keep hearing where God is calling us in order to pick up the mantle and brush it off and get in and get ourselves ready to drape the mantle of pastoral leadership over the next person's shoulders. 
There's also an important parallel with, the, with Jesus in this mantle-passing tale of Elijah and Elisha. The book of Acts tells us that Jesus also ascended into heaven. Rather than passing his mantle to one individual, however, Acts reports that Jesus' spirit rested on all the disciples. We just celebrated this a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday. Jesus' ministry continued through the disciples, a bunch of ordinary folks. And who are Jesus' disciples today? Each and every one of us, not just pastors, but all of us. Beloved family and friends and fellow church members have passed the mantle to us with the prayer that we will continue Jesus' work and their work. I'm sure many of you have stories about how the mantle of faith was passed to you. Church, and perhaps especially the Presbyterian Church, is very different from many enterprises in our culture because it is supposed to be done by the ordinary people. It's not supposed to be done by professionals. Church is DIY, do it yourself. In the Presbyterian Church, it's the elected leaders, the elders, who by the way do not need to be old. It's the elders who lead the church and give it direction. It's the elected deacons who provide care for the congregation. Most of our ministries are do-it-yourself, our justice ministries, our fellowship, our education, our youth and children's ministries. It's mostly done by you. This is countercultural, especially in a place like Marin County, where more and more often people pay someone to do everything from yard work to child care to walking the dog. Now, this isn't a bad thing, but it is a thing. People in Marin are less and less inclined to do anything do-it-yourself, and that includes church. That means today, much of our do-it-yourself church work is done by retired folks. The retired folks in our congregation are a huge gift to all of us. They're the ones who have the time to serve on committees to do the yard work, to run the capital campaign, and so on. I'm hugely and deeply grateful for the retired folks in this congregation who contribute so much time for, to our ministries. The only downside is that we don't hear enough of the voices and perspective of the younger members, people who are still employed, people with kids still at home. There is a lot of important wisdom in our retired volunteers. I, I'm gonna call them the Elijah generation. We need the wisdom of the Elijah generation, but we also need those younger voices. We need to hear from the Elisha generation, especially now as we look forward to our own leadership transition with my upcoming retirement. We need young people. And in this congregation, young is certainly relative, but we need young-ish people to serve on our pastor nominating committee that will be elected sometime later this summer or in early fall. We need those voices, those younger voices, to be part of planning the future of this congregation. So we need to figure out how to make DIY church workable for the Elisha generation, 
for people with kids or jobs or both. We may need to look at providing more childcare for more events. We may need to look at how we schedule committee meetings or do committees. But this is the very problem. It doesn't work for me to stand up here and guess what would help make it possible for younger people to pick up the mantle of leadership. We need to listen to the younger people so that we know. And that, my friends, means taking time to get to know each other across generational lines. But, and here's the tricky part, we need to get to know each other across generational lines because we genuinely care about each other, not as a means to an end. All the recent research on church growth and decline points to younger people wanting authenticity more than they want what's hip or cool, more than they want flashy entertainment or even lattes. <laughs> Carrie Newhoff writes this about the millennial generation. This generation is, after all, a generation that has been marketed to more than any generation in human history. They can smell cheese and incompetence a mile away, but they can also smell fake a mile away. Being real matters more than doing. What the Elisha and Elijah story shows us is that even though God handpicked Elisha, Elijah prepared him, prepared Elisha to pick up the mantle when they developed a close relationship, a real and authentic relationship. Really, why would Elisha want to pick up the mantle from someone who didn't know him and care about him, who didn't care what life looks like to him and had no interest in his hopes and concerns? Really, why would anybody? This morning, I challenge us as a congregation to figure out how to get to know the many young and young-ish people in our congregation. You may not know much about them because they aren't here every Sunday. That's more and more typical for the Elisha generation. But we need to find ways to drape that mantle over their shoulders, mentor them, and most importantly, let them teach us about how to be church for the next generation. May it be so for you and for me and for this congregation. Amen.